0: Welcome to the Merlin Podcast, bringing Europe's fresh waters back to
1: life. It can seem like everyone's talking about nature based solutions at the moment. From policymakers to scientists and environmental managers, there is growing enthusiasm about the potential of these approaches to protect nature, whilst also strengthening the ways in which the natural world can support all our daily lives. But what are nature based solutions, broadly? They're environmental management approaches that use natural processes to help tackle socio-environmental challenges such as climate change, biodiversity loss, flooding, food production and health and well-being. Nature-based solutions are designed to bring benefits to both people and nature. For example, planting native forests in watersheds can help naturally filter water supplies and buffer flooding, as well as storing water for dry periods whilst restoring peat bogs can help provide biodiversity habitat and boost carbon storage to help tackle climate change. The EU-funded MERLIN project explores how the benefits from nature-based solutions can help foster collaborations between different economic sectors to help mainstream freshwater restoration. MERLIN works with representatives from six economic sectors agriculture, hydropower, insurance, navigation peat extraction and water supply and sanitation to encourage the adoption of nature-based solutions in their activities across Europe. Recent debates over the potential adoption of the ambitious EU nature restoration law show just how important working with these economic sectors is. Merlin project partners recently released a briefing exploring how nature-based solutions are understood across these sectors in Europe and, vitally, how they might help encourage collaborations which strengthen restoration efforts. In this podcast, we speak to project partners who work with these sectors, and in doing so, explore the key issues highlighted in the briefing. Here's Esther Carmen from the James Hutton Institute in Scotland. Esther works with the hydropower sector.
2: So what our focus is, and what we're really kind of... Bringing new through Merlin is the engagement with the industry. So we're lo- looking to engage um, in terms of the hydropower sector with those energy companies that are already sort of in the renewable energy space um, and, and sort of you know have maybe hydropower as part of their portfolios. So it includes that sort of private sector. Um, sort of stakeholders as well as obviously the public sector who've always been in, engaged in sort of the nature-based kind of work already um, and of course you know researchers and NGOs and, and, and those kind of you know what I would term as the usual suspects but as I say we, the new thing that we're really bringing to the party is engaging that industry into these conversations about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it.
1: As Esther highlights, the first key theme is that Merlin is working to help foster collaboration around freshwater restoration between different European economic sectors. Here's Sanya Pokrayads from the WWF's Living European Rivers Initiative to continue this thread. Sanya works with representatives from the water supply and sanitation sector.
3: So I think it's really important to understand that that, uh, that freshwater ecosystems are under risk and especially for the water supply and sanitation sector it is very clear that, uh, that we need to keep the water supply and we need to also have a good quality of water for the water suppliers and of course for the citizens. But uh, uh, what we want to point out, it's very important to uh, preserve our watersheds and uh, uh, look at the water at the source. So really look at preserving the watersheds, protecting what we have, uh, restoring what was damaged and then work with the other sectors to to ensure that the water quality is um uh, up to a certain standard already at the source. These are usually large scale interventions and that involves a lot of uh, partnerships and a lot of talking and uh, like a real participatory approach. So I think that's one of the challenges, but that's what we are really trying to address uh, within Merlin.
1: The need to encourage participatory approaches across landscapes is a view shared by Al Hassan Ibrahim from the James Hutton Institute. Al-Hassan works with representatives from the peat extraction sector.
4: So we cannot, as Merlin, do it in isolation, but then to work with them. And in working with them, um, we look more at the discussing having a common ground whereby we all understand what it means to say nature-based solution, what it means they are, by them playing a role to reach um, net zero emission. And so... Um, in dealing with this collaboration we look more at this their umbrella organization and also some of the companies which have been have immense expertise they've been working over the years extracting pits and also restoring um peatland at the site level and this is a great opportunity whereby we bring all of them together to decide what are the opportunities but also what are the barriers that are there that that are limiting them from from doing the kind of nbs that we want nature-based solutions that we want and how then can we make it and one of the issues that for instance nature-based solution envisage is let's say um, nature-based solution is across landscape scale that is upskilled to not just a specific site level, but how does that connect to the broader landscape? In terms of, for instance, um, a pit extraction site within, let's say, agricultural zone, how can it link with the agriculture? Where to ensure that we have more a catchment approach of nature-based solution or restoration and not that individual silo, doing things in silos.
1: Encouraging sectoral representatives to communicate and collaborate on environmental restoration projects is not always an easy process. As Jack Riley, from the international peatland society highlights
5: the peat extraction sector is, is perhaps a little bit more um, sensitive and um, and careful than than other sectors because of the they're always being accused of being the bad guys and 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 getting a lot of flight so they're they're, they're very reluctant to come out and discuss and talk because normally they just get shouted at and, and, and accused of destroying the planet um, and one thing that we've done, we're able to do in Maryland because IPS, um, we, we, I said we were the bridge. Um, we IPS does not lobby for the peat industry, although they are an, in our membership. It's a different kind of relationship, um, and um, we, 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 we sort of analyze the science and speak about it.
1: For Tamás Gruber from WWF Hungary despite the challenges collaboration between sectors is vital in achieving the goals of environmental policies tamas works with representatives from the navigation sector
0: so there are a lot of uh, uh, frameworks uh, or directives and there are a lot of, uh, or a lot of uh, guidance documents which uh, which are developed and uh, which have been uh, initiated by, by different commissions or, or directorates uh, to to support mm-hmm. the implementation of, of different uh, directives or regulations but uh, these are these are let's say the uh, overarching level but uh, in the, in practic- in the practical world uh, on on some certain reverse touches, It is sometimes very difficult to uh, to apply these uh, these guidance documents and to to really uh, find such kind of measures for example uh, fairway maintenance uh, measures which uh, which satisfies the expectations of the of the other uh, other stakeholders let's say the uh, local communities or the Uh, aspects of different tourism uh, uh, interests or the the institutions which are responsible for, for example, uh, providing drinking water supply. And if these sectors uh, don't have uh, uh, continuous uh, discussion with each other, uh, then uh, finding solutions how these uh, limited water resources uh, should be divided by the water users, who has the priority uh, or which activities should be the priority, then uh, very, it will be very difficult to, to find such solutions which, uh, which uh, also provides uh, the free-flowing uh, characters of, this, of the rivers.
1: As we've heard so far, Merlin is working to bring representatives from different economic sectors together. To find shared ground around freshwater restoration. But what are the barriers and trade offs that arise from this collaboration? And, equally, what are the opportunities? This is the second key theme identified in the Merlin Briefing. As Sanja describes.
3: Merlin is creating these communities of practice uh, for six sectors, but also cross-sectoral ones. So we will really try to balance out these trade-offs and try to find the best ways uh, for these sectors to still manage to use the resources uh, for benefit of people, but then also not damaging the nature and uh, in the long term also have a, a biodiversity benefit or biodiversity net gain. Um, well, a very clear uh, trade-off would be uh, maybe between the, uh, let's say agriculture sector and uh, the water supply sector because uh, if, uh, uh, if you would really like to keep more water in the landscape, then uh, let's say the irrigation uh, would need to be dealt in in a different way. That implies different mode of operation for the agriculture sector. Also, if you would like to restore some floodplains that are currently being used for, for agriculture, um, it might not be at the moment that beneficial for them. But on the other hand, and in the long term, there is the groundwater recharge. There is a possibility to use it in a different way uh, in a, with different crops to allow flooding or to allow grazing or different things. So there's always there are always solutions, but uh, uh, I think both the the partners need to be also uh, aware of the of the benefits and the costs uh, with the nature based solutions because our part, they are applied on such a large scale. It is not always clear who bears the costs and who reaps the benefits. Sometimes it's uh, someone upstream is paying the costs and someone downstream is reaping the benefits, and that was we that is what we are trying to look at on a really larger scale and try to bring all of these people together in terms of the water and um, san- uh, water supply and sanitation sector we are trying to look at the large scale partnerships in the upper watersheds because um it's not always possible for a single water operator or a water company uh to um deal with such a large uh, landscape uh, due to governance, due to uh, land use, uh, due to many different stakeholders who are involved, and it's usually quite difficult to uh, monetize all of the co benefits that the nature based solutions uh, bring that's uh, that's one of the challenges especially when it comes to investment the other is that there are so many uh, uh different um, different stakeholders and uh, governance levels also involved so the governance is always not so clear who is going to deal with what and as i mentioned before who bears the, post, uh, the costs and who Who reaps the benefits?
1: Sanya's point about how the costs and benefits of nature based solutions are shared between sectors resonates with Al Hassan Ibrahim's perspective.
4: Their um, ambitions for restoration, how can we make it as part of the broader discussion on nature based solutions? And how can we make this also, while they are helping us, the incentive, how would they also benefit? From it, So this is the whole point of um, collaboration with the sector. So we look at what we provide them and what they can also give back so mm-hmm. that we can all together um, mainstream nature-based solutions. There have been obviously um, several challenges, but then one of the key one that I would highlight first is that the incentives mm-hmm. for um, the sector to do restoration or nature-based solutions, that is beyond their site level. And like I I said, because once they are responsible for their site of extraction, they cannot fund, they don't have the funding or they are not mandated to go and spend their money elsewhere. So now um, if we want them to do this, how are we then going to fund it? And how are they going to also benefit from it? There's always going to be about then who is responsible, who is going to fund it. And um, we need to keep on thinking. I know there are already a lot of options, um, suggested options about how to fund some of these initiatives. But then we need to really work more to look at better and more maybe sustainable um funding mechanisms, something that will ensure that when restoration or nature-based solutions um, are undertaken, we can sustain it for the long term um, into the future, not just for the short term. And at the same time also, we can have that funding to do the nature-based solution on a larger scale. And we can have winners and also be able to manage the um, potential trade-offs.
1: Al Hassan's theme of the importance of responsibility for costs and benefits is shared by Esther Carmen.
2: So we're looking at um working with the hydropower sector and exploring, you know, where where are there opportunities to maybe remove some of these barriers? Um and, and look at then ver- you know, sort of That opens up opportunities for restoring sections of river and um, floodplain and, and sort of, you know, it just opens up the opportunity. So the dam removal itself is not the nature based solutions, but it's part of achieving nature based solutions. Well, there's quite there's a there's a huge number of barriers, I think. I mean, a couple of ones for the hydropower sector that we picked up, and I think they're probably common to other sectors as well, is um, whose responsibility is this? Um, you know, catchments, um, and especially, you know, when you're dealing with private companies and businesses, they're very much focused on their own sites, their own, the, the land they own, the assets they own. But sometimes we're talking about, you know, um, collaborating with other people on beyond their sites, beyond sort of um, their, their perspective, if you know, their, their, their sort of how they see their their kind of responsibility and their their sort of um, ownership um, dimensions. Um, So that's a big barrier. But the emphasis is going beyond just looking at the sector and we're trying to bring together different sectors. Now, coming with this is the the problem of finance. Who's going to pay for this? So who's responsible for it? Who's going to pay for it? Are two really key questions. And and they're not simple questions to, to kind of, you know, we don't have the answers to these yet. But these are the kind of things that we really need to explore with with the sector. We'll explore them with the sectors individually, but the key part of um, what we're going to be doing is also bringing different sectors together to have those discussions about where are the potential win-wins across the sectors as well as with nature. So we need to be realistic and we need to kind of understand the nuances, but we do need a positive. How do we get to a better place in the future? Um, so I think a positive attitude is essential. You know, you've got it, you've got to have a positive attitude, really. Um, you've got to have a can-do attitude. Um, and Merlin is really here, you know, in in our role is here as a broker and to help, to support, you know, we you know, we're not looking to impose. Um, We're looking to kind of facilitate discussions, exploration, sharing, learning. You know, that's a very positive space.
1: As a representative of the peat extraction sector, Jack Riley emphasises the need for appropriate compensation schemes to make nature-based solutions an attractive prospect in such discussions.
5: So the opportunity through Merlin is to... Um, try to present the 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 actual um, real facts of what uh, emissions are from um from from the peat industry and because they are also involved in peatland restoration which is uh, involving rewetting and reducing um, um greenhouse gas emissions um there is a possibility um to offset those emissions Against uh, um those that are retained uh and and uh aim towards um re- say making them more uh let's say um sustainable or or um zero zero um greenhouse gas emissions um, emitting and um then what compensation could companies receive um the they, they could be paid. But payment is not really what, what companies need. What they want is, is carbon credits for the, for, for, the, for, the, for the emissions that are reduced or saved as a result of re-wetting and then um, appropriate management to maintain water um, levels at a high, high level. Now, the, the way this would work is once you restore a, a peatland, uh, make it wetter, reduce its emissions, that's forever. So what you do one year is added to in subsequent years. So it's accumulated. So it may seem a little bit in year one or in, in any one year, um, but 10, 20 years on, everything adds up and if companies got credit for that, then then there is a possibility they could reach zero emissions and that could secure um, a more positive future of relating um, peat extraction to restoration, because many areas that are now extracted are actually drained, degraded, and emitting large amounts of uh, uh, greenhouse gases. And and after working them and re- restoring, there could be benefits for biodiversity and and climate change.
1: For all the positive discussions around collaboration with economic sectors, however. It's important to remember their responsibilities towards nature, as Kirsty Blackstock from the Hutton Institute outlines.
2: Merlin has to consider, if we talk about win-wins, we must protect nature. And I think we have to ensure that these economic sectors are considering the full cost of their production practices, so they may have a responsibility to restore the nature on which their businesses depend. So this can be quite a tricky and uncomfortable conversation to have, which is why we need to work together over time to find common solutions. But I think things like the risk to supply chains due to drought, flood or reduced biodiversity and pollinators can be a really fruitful way to get sectors to invest in themselves.
1: Whilst the term might be relatively new, the ideas supporting nature-based solutions have a longer history with traces of concepts of sustainability and ecosystem services that have informed global environmentalism in recent decades. So a third key theme in the Merlin Briefing is the importance of the perception of nature-based solutions and the benefits they can bring to sectors. I asked project partners how they thought the sectors perceive nature-based solutions. Is Sanya
3: I think uh, it, it depends on the sector. Some sectors are more aware of it. Some uh, some of them are not. But uh, even though uh, if they're not using the NBS terminology, you know, strictly, I think they're quite aware of the uh, uh, need to protect the natural resources. They're aware of the need uh, to work with nature. They are aware of sustainable development goals. So in a way, even though uh, in uh, in the beginning, they were not using strictly the NBS language. I think that now under- they understand more and more the importance of it for their for
4: their work.
1: Al Hassan Ibrahim continues the theme.
4: Well, I would say it's relatively new when we consider nature based solution as a term because um, the sector are more used to terms like rewetting or restoration. And because that is what they have been doing, usually when, after they have um, extracted pit and they are um, reached their point of completion, then they try to draw water into the site to um, bring in water. That is what basically they call um, rewetting. And, or sometimes they do revegetation as well, But then um, the whole point is that nature-based solution, like I said, is based on some standard or specific criteria, which at the moment, the sector had not really considered that. And it's understandable because they are private entities. And so they only do things based on um, legal provision or their licensing procedures.
1: Esther Carmen highlights the importance of so-called win-win outcomes in how nature-based solutions are perceived.
2: So what's been a bit of a barrier in the past in this kind of space has been the perception of restoration and conservation. You know, there's been a very um, sort of, you know, the e- economy versus sort of nature kind of perspe- perspective. And we're now starting to really get over that and, and sort of change perspectives. Um, but it's still very much prevalent. It's still an assumption that actually, um, it's almost like a zero sum game, you know, you either have one or the other. And actually, what we're doing in Merlin is really introducing this idea of nature based solutions, which is about win wins. So it's not about an either or it's a both. So what can nature based solutions do for the sector? So hydropower is often positioned as a way of, helping to, you know, um, as part of this renewable energy portfolio and uh, mitigating climate change. But they're also impacted by climate change. You know, we've got extreme, more extreme water levels and they rely on water. So actually, are there ways that we can use nature to help um, sort of alleviate some of these issues that the hydropower sector might be facing themselves? But doing that requires taking a holistic catchment kind of approach. We can't just look at one single barrier we need to look at a much broader kind of perspective in terms of sort of you know uh, freshwater ecosystems and rivers and, and things like that but I think I think the the, the, the the really good opportunity is around the climate adaptation side of things but there will be others that we need to explore because we don't fully understand the hydropower sector and how it operates.
1: the realities of the ecological and climate emergencies have the potential to alter perceptions of the importance of nature-based solutions as Mia Abeltoft highlights. Mia is a climate risk policies advisor and works with representatives from the insurance sector.
6: We're now uh, seeing that climate adaptation is coming up as a very important issue because more and more catastrophes and, and hazards and, and uh, climate-related uh, incidents are happening. And they're paid by the insurance sector. So the insurance sector needs to sort of step up and say, "What what our role, should we look at our role and how can we contribute in a new way? And that's very much an issue under Maryland because you have to be aware that insurance industry and the non-life insurance, which pays for the damage, they don't insure land. They don't insure na- nature so so for them biological nature is, nature uh, based solutions are not part of their portfolio or vocabulary or so you need to help them to understand how nature based solutions can be part of their core products in europe if you ask an life insurance company they wouldn't really know what it is, so we we have a way to go. They, but just in the last four or five years, that it's been more talked to in the media and everywhere where they can. They starting to have more curiosity to want wanting to understand that also because of the EU regulations. It's something called the EU taxonomy, which is a, a reporting system on how green an insurance company are uh, so they, they it's they're getting there slowly by slowly.
1: A common point made by interviewees was that providing evidence of the benefits of nature-based solutions is vital in improving their perception amongst sectors. This is the fourth key theme in the Merlin briefing, as Esther Carman describes.
2: It's often quite a new concept. People, you know I mean it's not been around that long. Um, I think the nature-based solutions concept was maybe been around for about 10 years or so, but it hasn't really infiltrated into the industry quite so much. Um, for various reasons it, you know, you'll find it in science and you'll find it in policy, but not so much within the industry, um, you know, within the people, the private sector, sort of people who work within that. So you know, often our work is about kind of explaining what we're talking about in the fact that we're not talking about this either or conflictual kind of situation.'re we're, we're talking about something that's a bit more inclusive. So yeah, we, we understanding and breaking down those assumptions, is kind of the first step that we're doing, really, um, and and that is opening up conversations, and people are are more willing to come to the table um, and collaborate when when they don't feel so threatened.
1: Similarly, Thomas Gruber suggests that many industry practitioners need more evidence about nature-based solutions to support their planning activities.
0: My uh, impression is that uh, the uh, many of the stakeholders or many of the participants of these discussions. Uh, heard about uh, the nature-based solutions and uh, heard about the uh, the term that uh, this is more than uh, simple restoration uh, activities uh, and but but still they don't have uh, enough uh, experience about how how does it work in reality so where where, uh, where it is uh, uh, this approach. Uh, can really help or satisfy the expectations of the, of the, dif- of the different stakeholders. So they, uh, they more or less know about it, but uh, they have a, a knowledge gap uh, in spreading experiences. So sharing the knowledge, sharing the, uh, the, the proper uh, complex and integrated uh, planning approach Uh, is still a difficulty, a challenge uh, for them.
1: Sanya Pokrejac highlights how providing evidence of benefits can be tricky across wide geographical scales.
3: Uh, With the nature-based solutions, where you have to uh, quantify so many different benefits that they bring along, it's not always so easy. It's not so easy to show all the benefits that they bring because, for example, you can... um, uh, if you preserve uh, a watershed and uh, there is more water kept in the landscape and then the water suppliers have better quality of water, less treatment and more water in the landscape, etc., you would have to also illustrate how, how it reflects to all of the other sectors, how it has reduced the droughts and uh, how it has reduced these costs.
1: Hearing from these Merlin partners has highlighted both the scale of the challenges in bringing economic sectors together to find common ground around freshwater restoration, and the potential benefits this process could bring. As we've heard, by bringing people together, new communities of practice are being formed, where vital discussions over the value of, and evidence for, nature-based solutions are being carried out. The hope is that these discussions will help mainstream freshwater restoration across Europe in years to come, by helping demonstrate how it can benefit both people and nature. However, as we've heard, it's also important to remain aware of the responsibilities sectors have to help restore the environments that their activities have historically damaged. In closing each interview, I asked one final question. What are the key ingredients for successful collaboration across sectors? Here's Mia Abeltoft.
6: Well. I, I think collaboration is the key message because, yeah. because if you're, I think the industry is is a traditional, it's sort of uh, a bit conservative. Uh, so it needs to be sort of pulled in new directions from people thinking in a totally different way. So uh, with the experience of working right in between the two, um, private public areas, I see that uh, from the frustration and conflict, we managed to sort of bring these people together to build trust and to understand each other's uh, role and the need of, of how we together can form uh, different definitions and uh, solutions. And so I think this this collaboration uh, within project, either it's research or directly, is, uh, is really the key message.
1: For Sanya Pokrajac, common ground can be found by identifying shared problems.
3: Um, I think it's, uh, it's uh, always very important to start with the, with the problems that we have. So the issues that we have or the societal challenges that we want to resolve um and then i think it's quite clear then who you need to engage because always you need to engage the right partners uh, uh who are going to support you people who are influenced by that societal challenge people who can influence uh, the solution of that societal challenge and uh, really uh design the solutions together so so cooperation is really necessary so uh bilateral meetings, workshops, conferences, roundtables, uh in terms of solving an issue, I think that is really uh, important because especially in the case of nature-based solutions, it's not possible even for one organization or 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 association or one project to to work on its own and be standalone because it's a very integrated approach. So my advice would be Get opinions from as many uh, relevant stakeholders as part and partners as possible in terms of problems, but also in terms of solutions. And uh, I'm talking about local communities. I'm talking about governments, um, non governmental organizations, academia and experts from various fields. So, so I think all of these levels are very important if we want to understand the problem and if we want to solve it in, in the right way. Because at the end, we want to restore the ecological functions that will bring uh, uh, ecosystem benefits to people, but also restore the functions for the benefit of nature and biodiversity as well.
1: For Jack Riley, trust is key to any collaboration.
5: If I, if I, was, uh, I, if I was to give one word, I, I would say trust. Um, there has to be trust between the partners. Um, there has to be uh, a meeting of of minds based on real um information that uh is um is is verifiable um and there shouldn't be regardless is regardless of one's personal feelings and we all have these um there there should be um no predetermined or preconceived uh, outcomes of, um, of of discussion.
1: And finally, Esther Carmen highlights the importance of positive attitudes in building relationships with people to help collectively address growing environmental crises.
2: So yeah, we're just trying to Merlin's just trying to chip away and make a contribution to understanding how do we how do we change towards a more sustainable future in Europe really through that nature-based solutions. And the Green Deal has been a fantastic setting. Um, To help us, but also the industry realize that this is something that's that's this is the pathway that we need to go down. And I think it's really important. It's you know you're seeing it in policy, you're seeing it in 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 our everyday lives, in the news, and and yeah, people are uh, increasingly aware of the massive challenges we face. So this sends a very strong signal that you know we need to we need to change, and we want industry and we want lots of people to. Help us work out how to do that. Really good sort of collaboration is about building relationships with people and how you build. Re- I mean, that's the fundamental. That's, that's the foundation of everything. Um, and how you build good relationships with people is you listen to them. Um, you don't impose your will. It's about an equal you know, exchange. Um, so that positive attitude we talked about earlier is really important, but but really not not sort of imposing your ideas. You know, it's it's what we call co creation. It's collaboratively creating things together, um, and really demonstrating that that's what you know. It's it's not just saying it; it's actually kind of doing it in your actions.
1: You can find out more about the Merlin Project and read the briefing discussed in this podcast project-merlin.eu You can also keep up with progress on social media and at freshwaterblog.net The Merlin Project is funded by the European Commission's Horizon 2020 programme. This podcast was presented and produced by me, Rob St John and the music is by project coordinator Sebastian Burke's band, Scala. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.